Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's time. It's time for Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I'm so excited to be here with you and to have you here with me and our community. And oh my goodness, I can promise you the best show ever today. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, and that's saying a lot because we've had some great guests, but today we're knocking it out of the park. Coming up, we've got Barry Brill. He was a minister back in Sir Robert Muldoon's cabinet. Can you imagine? And he was Minister of Energy, and he's going to be talking about uh, a scandalous waste of money that's gargantuan. It's truly, truly shocking. And you're going to be galled and enraged and amazed uh, hearing it from Barry. So we've got that to look forward to. We've also got uh, Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union of New Zealand, wonderful organisation. Jonathan does an amazing job. He's going to be telling us about a couple of stories of censorship that the Free Speech Union are champion. Thank goodness for that. And he and I are going to have a bit of a head-to-head because it's a fixed issue of the mongrel mob and their gang patches. Mm. Is that a free speech issue? Or should the mongrel mob be running out of town? Well, I'm a running out of town sort of guy, and Jonathan Ayling's a free speech sort of guy. Well, I'm a free speech guy. I'm an absolutist on free speech. It's going to be a great debate, because this is where the rubber hits the road. And we'll see if we can resolve it. Also coming up, first time this year, Tane Webster is back with Politics Explained. So stay tuned. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Now, for our next guest and topic, I thought I should start with a joke. 
and it goes like this. It's an informative joke. Uh, a, a farmer once turned up to our parliament as an MP, and he was on the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee, and the Secretary of the Treasury uh, took him aside and gave him a briefing and said, one thing, when you're looking at the budget figures, there's going to be some very large numbers. And I thought that I would explain to you how to conceive of what these big numbers mean. And uh, he says, great. And the Secretary of the Treasury said, well, picture a $100 bill, a $100 note, and imagine a bundle of them from the bank. In a bundle from the bank, there's a hundred, and that's ten thousand dollars. And it sits, if you lay it on the table, a centimeter high. If you put ten bundles, one on top of the other, it's ten centimeters. Oh, it's ten thousand dollars in a bundle. Did I say that? It's a hundred thousand dollars at ten centimeters. And he said, if you get to a meter, it's a million dollars. The Secretary of the Treasury then explained that a billion dollars is a stack of $100 bills that's a kilometer high. And that's a trick with how politicians get away when they're talking about a billion. People struggle to conceive of a million. A billion is a thousand times that. So Secretary of the Treasury turned to the farmer and said, now, you know, can you picture now a billion dollars? He said, truthfully, I'm still trying to picture that $100 bill. (laughs) (laughs) As um, how politicians get away, we can picture hundreds of dollars. We struggle to picture a million. We can't conceive of a billion dollars. But we're going to be talking about billions of dollars in our next interview because we've got the wonderful Barry Brill, who is a lawyer, was an MP, was a minister for energy way back in Sir Robert Muldoon's uh, cabinet, an all-round good guy. And for years and years and years, he has been doing world-class. It's picked up overseas analysis of the climate change, what do you call it, Barry, a hoax or a scam? What do you call it, misunderstood? What do you call the climate change doomsdayers? Is it a scam? Is that the word you um, use? It's a major mistake. Major mistake. That's a good way of putting it. So this major mistake of worrying about doomsday and putting our economy and lifestyle under huge stress for what is a scientific error at best. I think I'd use stronger language now, but uh, Barry is much more polite as me. Now, if you go over to a famous blog called BassettBrashAndHide.com, Barry has an astonishing article there. It's absolutely, you're going to be incredulous listening to this story, and you're going to be angry. But it's complicated. But it's the most significant decision a government could take. And Barry's going to explain it to you. Because until Barry came along, no one had heard of it. Barry, the floor is yours. Tell us about what Jacinda Ardern did. Well, Rodney, the uh, 
subject matter was the uh, the nationally determined contrib- contribution uh, that countries are asked to make uh, uh, under the Paris Agreement to reduce global emissions. Uh, the idea was that you make a indicative uh, nationally determined contribution for the year of 2015 to 2020, and then you make a firm one for the period 2021 to 2030, which was expected to be enhanced. Now, a nationally determined contribution is called nationally determined because it's over to the individual country as to how much they offer. In other words, it's voluntary. Uh, you're not obliged to to offer anything, uh, although we have all signed up to the Paris Agreement, which essentially requires everybody uh, to do their best to contribute what they can uh, to the reduction of global emissions. So New Zealand went about very uh, comprehensively figuring out how much it could actually do uh, and the the process was through the Zero Carbon uh, Act of 2020, uh, a climate change commission was established, and that climate change commission is to set five-year budgets for how much New Zealand should reduce its emissions uh, from uh, from their high point. Uh, now, their, their high point. Uh, for this purpose was the year 2005 when we had emissions of about 320 million tonnes according to our highly uh, dubious uh, national inventory of greenhouse gases. So how much would we do in five years and how much would we do in 10 years? Well, well, this was under a major uh, inquiry undertaken by the Climate Commission. It received public uh, submissions and did a national consultation. And it came up with the fact that over the period between 2021 and 2030, uh, New Zealand could reduce its emission level by 15%. Uh, that was 50-odd million tonnes a very ambitious target, and the Commission said that if it was any more than that, there would be really serious uh, economic and particularly social effects on the country. So it's a real stretch. That that number was how many tonnes? 50 million. 50 million tonnes. And that's a 15% reduction on the peak. And to go beyond that, is a big well to go beyond that. The commission said we can't we can't do it, uh, and uh, the only thing you could do is to buy uh, emissions savings from other countries. Okay, uh, and that would be a cash payment where we uh, we buy carbon credits uh, on an international market. Except there isn't any international market yet, and the commission doesn't think there will be one within the next ten years. So we have to find projects uh, in China or in Europe or somewhere where people undertake to uh, 
buy trees or or close down a, a manufacturing plant or something uh, and earn which earns credits which we then buy uh, by a uh, a cash payment. That's highly dodgy, right? Well, the whole thing has been uh, the the point is that we have bought a lot of these uh, what are called hot air credits. Uh, we we were awash with them uh, in uh, the early part of our uh, emission trading scheme, uh, and uh, uh, then the the uh, Labour government or the uh, coalition Labour Minister first government in 2018 uh, declared to the world that we would stop using them, and that. All the hot air credits that we already had, we would write them off, uh, and we wouldn't use our Kyoto overhang. We had a very big credit from Kyoto, uh, but uh, the Ardern government said we wouldn't use any of that uh, back in 2018. But now here we are in 2021, and we have to determine what our national uh, nationally determined contribution will be uh, for the 20s. Uh, and the feeling in Wellington in the Ministry for the Environment was that the number didn't sound very exciting. Uh, 15% off 2005 peak uh, was lower than what a number of other countries were achieving. Now, this had been New Zealand's fate for a while since back in the Kyoto days because we had a couple of major problems that other countries didn't have. Uh, the first one was that our electricity system was already renewable. So whereas other countries were going from coal to gas and thereby uh, getting big reductions, we weren't on coal at all, uh, bar of that very small amount that we use at Huntley. So we that wasn't open to us. A second problem was that about half of our emissions uh, claimed to be from farm animals, and uh, there's no way, there's no technology available to do anything about that. Uh, and thirdly, and related to that, because we are the only developed country who depends on agriculture for, for a living, we don't have a whole lot of major industry which we could close down. And like has been happening in Europe, in the UK, in Germany, they've been deindustrializing for about the last 10 years. Instead of uh, making things at home, they are importing them in from China. Now, that doesn't do a damn thing for global emissions because it simply moves the emissions from, say, the UK to Asia, uh, but it gives them bragging rights. And in the uh, the circles that the uh, our climate change ministers move in, it's the bragging rights that seem to count. But we didn't have any of this. Uh, we have very little of this major industry, which we could uh, close down by deindustrializing and replace with imports from China. So we simply weren't going to be able to achieve 
numbers that sounded good when it came to uh, the next uh, conference of the parties and people announced how big their percentage was. And the whole uh, object of this is to say that my, my NDC is bigger than your NDC. <laughs> It's, and, uh, it's, a, it's that simple, isn't it? It is, I, I, and I don't, um, I don't know why. Uh, why that New Zealand feels it has to be up there competing, and indeed, under the Ardern government, it was their stated position. It was. Uh, um, said over and over again that they wanted to be the world leader. And that was the object of the Zero Carbon Act. New Zealand will be the world leader. We will endure more economic pain than any other country in the world was uh, our ambition. Well, when it came to the determine the 2021 uh, NDC, the Climate Commission uh, made a recommendation that we we do the 15% maximum that we could do in New Zealand and we add another 15% that we would buy in offshore credits. So that was an expenditure of about $12 billion uh, that was recommended by the Climate Commission uh, in just, order for just, us to put on a... Just sorry. hold it there, Barry, because this is the bit that starts to escape me because it's the lunacy of it that means I I think I struggle to understand it and I imagine listeners struggle to understand it. So the commitment they were talking about was that we would restrict our use of fossil fuels and our farming to cut our emissions by 15%. And this would be at some significant pain because you wouldn't do it otherwise, right? I mean, this is this is cutting down, um, um, this is changing our economic future to drop this by 15%. You're hamstringing industry, you're hamstringing farming. On top of that, this commission suggests that we buy credits over the 10-year period, and that means because there's not an international market, correct me where I go wrong, Barry, we would partner up with some dodgy scheme in some dodgy country and pay them money to do some project that will supposedly reduce their emissions. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Uh, yes, yes, that's correct. Whether the projects are always dodgy, uh, there might be a uh, a better system might evolve. Uh, it's not there now. Uh, to skip ahead for a moment, uh, in the following year's budget in 2022. Grant Robertson set aside a sum of $9 million uh, as a special fund to 
allow us to go searching for opportunities to buy these things offshore uh, because they're not there. Not uh, There's dodgy ones there. I presume the uh, New Zealand government is hoping it can find less dodgy ones, but it's not easy. You can't look in the yellow pages. And so $9 million has been set up simply for the search. And the, the, now, the, the, it, uh, so, so the implication was, here we go, cut down your use of fuel, put up the price of electricity, cut back farming, cut back industry, plus give away $12 billion of taxpayers' money to support projects in other countries. Is that, I mean, am I missing, am I missing this? No, you're, you're spot on. That's exactly what the proposal so, was. So that's like over 10 years, was it? That's $1.2 billion a year that our listeners are contributing via their taxes to go to projects, right? But not right, projects. But it gets to, worse. Not projects to oh, look. That's as, you know. Just let me get this bad bit into my head first, without it getting worse. So we are collecting money off New Zealanders. We're sending over a billion dollars. The plan is to spend over a billion dollars. Might be to China. Might be to the Ukraine. It's been in the past. It might be um, Thailand, and we say, here you go. We're going to help you with this project that you want to do, and we will pay or make a contribution to this project because your project reduces global emissions cheaper than we can do it because we're struggling, and we write them a check. It's real money. It's not like pretend money. It's real money coming out of your mind, our listeners' pockets. Each year. Right. It will, uh, either in the short term or in the medium term, it will come right out of the schools, the hospitals, uh, law and order, all of the things that we don't have enough money to spend on now. Uh, we're going to take some of the money we are spending on that and send it off overseas. Uh, and that's and in addition to reducing our emissions. That's in addition to in addition to reducing our emissions at home at a a very ambitious rate. And you uh, and I which is going e to stretch us. Even on the IPC climate doomsdayers scenario, what New Zealand does is a drop in the bucket that makes no discernible difference in their models. Am I correct in that? Yes, yeah. New Zealand total uh, emissions amount to 0.16% of the world, like of the world's uh, emissions. So if we were to say we're going to reduce our emissions by 15%, that's 15% of four-fifths of uh, whatever. Uh, Fanny Adams, isn't it? Um, yes. It's a, it's a, you know, it is a, a microscopic drop in the bucket in terms of the global fight against climate change. It 
won't make the slightest difference uh, to uh, to the global total. It's just a rounding error, but it'll cause a great deal of hardship back home in New Zealand. And our politicians, and you and I know this because we've been politicians, they're going along to these international conferences and they announce a big number like this and they get fated. They get hosannaed. They are wonderful because there's Jacinda Ardern and James Shaw leading the world in their commitment. And here's the poor, benighted New Zealand citizen suffering. Right. And what the... the the, the worst of this is first that it's it's voluntary. We're doing it simply because we want to. But when I say we want to, we who are paying for it were never asked whether we wanted to do this. Uh, it was something that Jacinda and James Shaw and Grant Robertson and Co uh, decided they wanted to do. Uh, and of course, it's other people's money. But this is other people's money on a giant, giant scale, uh, and the so it, you know, they've made this donation. Uh, it's not something we had to do. Is the first point. The second point is that you would think for that investment that we would get something by way of return. We don't get anything at all. Nothing. This is a straight donation. So the sacrifice that will have to be made by men, women and children throughout New Zealand uh, and the increased poverty, the hardships and the like will all be for nothing. We'll get no return for any of it. We're, it's, we're pissing Just it away. Just a donation. We're pissing it away. We're pissing it away, yeah. Now I've got uh, that and then you said, but it gets worse. It gets worse because the, the Climate Commission's recommendation of an extra 15% reduction, that is an extra 50 million tonnes, be bought in uh, offshore, in offshore credits. Uh, sure, and the Ministry for the Environment decided to up the ante. And they proposed on the basis of what some other countries had, some high numbers. So for, we wanted to retain our position as the world leader. Uh, we should jump that figure from 15% to 30%. In other words, the $12 billion that the Climate Commission had envisaged spending offshore Shaw recommended it be doubled to $30 million, $30 billion. Oh, sorry, to $24 billion, right? I'm getting the, the – first we'll take the, the, uh, the percentages. The Climate Commission wanted 15%. Shaw upped it to 30%. That means that the price, the cost, would go from $12 billion to $24 billion. Uh, and that was the proposal put forward by the 
Ministry for Energy was signed off by James Shaw. This caused a good deal of alarm between all the other departments, uh, and many of them had a finger in this pie, as you'd expect, like the uh, Ministry of Primary Industry, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, and, of course, the Treasury, uh, and the Ministry of Business. Uh, and Treasury put in a last-minute effort for a compromise to reduce the figure uh, proposed by uh, by James Shaw, uh, which uh, which was the forty five percent reduction, and so those papers, all of them, and they're all available on the internet. Uh, they went to the cabinet uh, in November twenty twenty one, and the answer that came out was that. James Shaw had been too modest. The cabinet was going to increase his bid from 45% to 50%. So have you ever heard have you ever heard of, have you ever heard of a minister putting a proposal up to cabinet for some spending some money and getting it through cabinet and saying he didn't ask for enough? <laughs> getting more than he asked for. I have never, I've never, it boggles the imagination. Uh, you would say, well, this would be uh, an absolute impossibility. And somehow it you, you are buying nothing. You're buying nothing. Buy nothing at all. Uh, but uh, it certainly would be uh, consistent with having an NDC that's bigger than other people's NDCs. Uh, and uh, so that would keep us up there as the world leader. Uh, and so... Which is apparently important to the people at the cabinet table. That would, that would mean hard cash going out of New Zealand over the next 10 years of 30,000 million dollars right it, it's actually i think it's 34000 million dollars but because we don't know how much future credits yes will like cost like in, in 2028 how much will it cost you to buy the credits so it was calculated not by the Treasury, but you're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Barry Brill, who was Minister of Energy way back in the early 70s. Amazing. Wonderful, wonderful guy, an expert on climate change and climate change policy, literally an expert, uh, a recognised expert, unless, of course, you're a New Zealand government expert, in which case Barry's probably a climate change denier and a bad person. Um, and he's describing to us this commitment that Cabinet made to reduce our emissions by 15% over 10 years, plus to spend upwards and maybe more of $30 million over 10 years, that's $3 billion a year, 
Oh, my goodness. Supporting projects in other countries that reduce emissions, all of which will make no difference, even if you accept the worst scenario from the IPC and the doomsdayers, will make no difference to the world. The only achievement in all of this is to make James Shaw and Jacinda Ardern look good in the circles of leaders who think this is important. The Chinese uh, and the Russians, of course, India, they're falling about laughing as Western nations hobble their economies, de-industrialize their economies, and just buy everything from these other countries. Now, Barry, you were just saying before we had a bad uh, signal that 30 million, it could be more than that because we don't know what it will cost to be buying these effective credits into the future. No, we, uh, nobody knows because they don't exist and there's no market exists. Uh, and uh, the the only uh, sort of hard figures are that the IEA, that's the International Energy Agency, has uh, in a report has made an assumption that it would be uh, $227 a tonne uh, and that's uh, just an assumption for the purposes of illustrating a report. But the New Zealand Treasury, in the lead-up to the election, uh, picked up that figure and some other figures from the IEA. Uh, and if you were to use that figure, then it would be $23.8 billion. Uh, but the... Climate Commission says, no, there's indirect costs as well as direct costs, uh, and the figure we should use is $240 a tonne. And so if that is correct, then that's $34 billion. Now, you know, we're at 2024 already, so we are talking in terms of the next five, six years spending something between six and seven billion dollars every year on average oh my goodness me now tell me this must surely this this provision for this expenditure having been through cabinet that must be appearing in the fiscal updates and in future budgets right uh it appears in the fiscal update uh that's what i'm referring to it's a a a report was formed part of the fiscal update in September 2023. Uh, and for those who want to look it up, it's at page 80. Uh, and it has several pages on uh, how to uh, price this uh, NDC commitment, NDC pledge. Uh, now, uh, it's not in the forward budgets because the they go forward only four years. Uh, and so if we like to take the position uh, that we don't really have to pay this until uh, the end of the 2020s, uh, then we could avoid putting it in this year's budget or next year, but then it would have to come in the 2026 budget because it would then be inescapable. Uh, and, of course, 2026 is an election year. 
and I would say that it would totally destroy Nicola Willis's uh, budget in that election year uh, if she were going to leave all of the $34 billion until uh, oh. uh, for as long as she possibly can. It would bankrupt the government. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I just don't understand how a government can go to the people to say what we promise you if you elect us is we're going to take your money and give you less of health and less of education. We're going to increase child poverty. We, all of the objectives that we've spelled out, we're going to take the money for that and and we're going to donate it to uh, these projects overseas. So one, op- nothing yeah. at all. so one option for the Luxon-led government to do is to kick the can down the road and say, yes, we're committed to this, but we're not going to make any. Prov- we're not going to make any provision this for the next four years because I think that's how long a budget looks out. And kick it down, but of course, as you say, as long as the commitment's there, it accumulates, and in the limit, you could be paying the thirty-four billion in twenty twenty-nine or something, right? Well, you could, but I think in 2026 you'd have no option but to uh, to bring it into your four-year forward look. I see, of course, of course, of course, of course. So it's oh, inescapable. My, it's inescapable. <laughs> and, I mean, you you know yourself, right? They're talking big numbers in a budget. But the Minister of Finance is chasing, for, chasing around looking for millions, and here are billions that no New Zealander knows has been committed. I'd never heard of it until I read your article. I had no grasp that this had been done on my behalf. I was busy concentrating on the damage to farming and to industry and to homeowners of this madcap uh, climate commitment. I had no idea that we were committed to making this multi-billion dollar donation. It's an absolute no-brainer for a government just to say that's gone and free up money for health education and indeed for tax cuts, right? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it doesn't free up money uh, because it's money it's we don't have. There. It's it's not in it's uh, not in the budget we're, now. It's not in there, and we don't have it. But of course, if we don't denounce it and say no, we're not going to do that, uh, then it's going to become a uh, it's going to become a broken promise of the uh, current government uh, they, if they don't denounce quite early in their three year term then it becomes their problem and I, I really think that it's uh, the only sensible thing uh, for the Prime Minister and the Minister to do is to say that in their review of the books, they find that New Zealand cannot afford to make this generous gesture, after all, uh, and we will face up to the terrible prospect of no longer being the leader of the world. Uh, (laughs) And our NDC won't be bigger than other people's NDCs, after all. And and, um, everyone can say how nasty Chris Luxon is and how nasty Nicola Willis is, 
And Jacinda Ardern and James Shaw can keep their credentials, international credentials, shiny and bright because they made the commitment and they can just say that nasty right-wing government came in and undid it. So it's a win-win. Right. Yes, it is a win-win. Jacinda Ardern and James Shaw can still be regarded as the adults in the room. Yes. While uh, Jacinda and James will continue to be fated on the international cocktail circuit of the climate change. Uh, yeah, and and we save we save thirty billion plus and dollars, um, which is, you know, look, this is so shocking to me that you don't even have the words for it because that basically signed us up to a $34,000 million expenditure so they could tout themselves as leading the world and have these great credentials. It's like what you'd expect a tin pot dictator after 30 years in power to be doing, sort of making themselves look good or enjoying the largesse of being a tyrant at the immiseration of the people back home. Yes. This well was this trumpeted was this I don't read the news much now because it ruins my day, but was this in the news, Barry, that this commitment was made to spend this sort of money? Well, that's the extraordinary thing about it. Uh when they had the lead up to the election there was huge focus on the uh, tax reductions that were going to be made by the National Party, Uh, and the question was whether $1 billion could be taken from the tax imposed on overseas buyers of of expensive New Zealand properties. Now, that went on for days. The media were, were... utterly fascinated by this $1 billion and as to whether the National Party could do it or not. They never asked a single question about whether the National Party was going to spend $30 billion on this overseas donation. It, it wasn't raised by any of the media that, that I was aware of at all. At the time when this was passed, in November 21, uh, Auckland was locked down with the COVID, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, traffic light system, uh, and so Aucklanders couldn't attend Parliament, so Parliament wasn't in session. Uh, and uh, I suppose it must have been difficult to talk to the opposition because there doesn't appear to have been any bipartisan consultation or multi-partisan consultation. Uh, there wasn't any public consultation like there had been with, uh, with previous um, contributions to, uh, to the, the climate change um, agreement like Kyoto. So there was no public consultation. There was no consultation with Parliament. And then the Cabinet overrode all of their official advisors, including the Treasury, uh, and all of that, it seems, was constitutional. 
However, the, yes. it didn't hit the news because people were far too concerned with COVID than they, they were with these other things that were going on. The reason I came up and introduced this segment with that joke about the billion dollars was when I first turned up as a bright and shiny MP, I came across a Treasury study that discussed the deadweight cost of some taxes in New Zealand. And one figure I think was, I can't recall whether it was $2.4 billion or $4.2 billion. And at the time, there was a journalist working for the New Zealand Herald who was lovely called Patricia Herbert. And funny enough, she went on to be the Minister of Finance, Michael Cullen's press secretary. And I got her interested in writing up a small story uh, in the New Zealand Herald. And she wrote it up brilliantly. However, I, when I saw her next, I said, oh, that was a great story you wrote, Patricia. She says, oh, thank you. And I said, only thing is, you wrote that it was $2.4 when it was actually $2.4 And she said, oh, yeah. When I, was, <laughs> when I was writing the story, I was trying to think, what did Rodney say? Was it $2.4 million or $2.4 billion? And I decided it was $2.4 million. And in your mind's eye, an M and a B don't make much difference. It's just an extraordinary sum of money, isn't it? And it's a bit yes, like well, it, you I just can't it, grasp it. Well, you know, you can't grasp it. But I think your use of the term 34,000 million uh, helps to differentiate it from 34 million. Yes. Like it's a thousand times more than that. A thousand times. A metre to a kilometre. It's extraordinary. Now, um, the thing that I was, when I read your article, and, of course, I was reminded of your time in politics, and we had this huge controversy over Think Big. And the discussion was cost-benefit analysis, and was it worth it? And there's all this um, all this money going out on these projects and that it would be wasted. And I was fascinated by this and followed it most closely as a young boy or young man. And very often, because I live in central Otago now, I find myself driving past the Clyde Dam, Barry. And I all love right. it. I absolutely love that dam, and I know they had a lot of trouble with stabilisation and all the rest of it, but the amount of power that thing generates for New Zealand, and it's a magnificent thing to witness uh, and to look at and to conceive of the water and that gravity with that water can generate, I forget how much, I mean, you may know, but it generates a significant chunk of power for New Zealand. And no. we were we were discussing at that time what a dreadful thing this was because this money was being spent and it would offer not the return that one would expect for that sort of expenditure. But at least, to coin a phrase, we got the damn dam. You know, we actually got the power. We're enjoying the benefits of now. We're spending way beyond even adjusting for inflation, I would expect what all of those think big projects were, and there's been not a murmur. And we get nothing. 
Yes, you brought back the, the nightmare of the time I had to go to a public meeting in Cromwell uh, to tell them that we had decided to drown their town. <laughs> uh, that was one of the toughest you things I had got, to do. You must have got that shortest of short straws, Barry. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Uh, well, I, it's it's easy to remember. I can assure you. I uh, bet. However, oh. we uh, we we were um, cost benefit studies were um, and national economic benefit studies uh, were uh, were at the very core of all of these because they were investment decisions. We spend money now. What will be the returns we get in the future? Well, it's because New Zealand is capital constrained, and we and all this money that we would spend, we're spending on Think Big. We were going to borrow that money, all this thirty billion dollars that the government is going to spend uh, on offshore credits. That money is going to be borrowed as well. You know, yes. we'll borrow it from offshore, then we'll turn it around and spend it offshore, and all we'll have will be a lifetime of paying interest on $30 billion for something we didn't want in the first place and which didn't do the world any good in the first place. So that's uh, there is um, one other thing I think I should uh, say because uh, you asked about the media uh, dealing with this, and I didn't mention that in 2022, a, uh, a newspaper called Business Desk, uh, which is a subsidiary now of the New Zealand Herald uh, and um, is run by Patrick Smalley, who uh, is one of those uh, old-time responsible journalists who will be well-known to you, Indeed, he's a good um, journalist. He'd be the best in terms he's of reporting. The, he'd probably be the best around today, yeah. So Patrick Smelly ran uh, five successive articles in the New Zealand Business Desk on five successive days and uh, three or four editorial articles as well about this NDC spending of the $30 billion. The articles were written by um, uh, the person who called Adrian Macy, who was the uh, New Zealand's first climate change ambassador. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Macy did very well in the world of uh, climate change diplomacy and uh, actually came to chair the sessions held by the um, uh, United Nations uh, Framework Committee, uh, which led to the Paris Agreement. Uh, and uh, his co-author was uh, uh, Professor Dave Frame, uh, who from Canterbury University, who was New Zealand's most highly qualified climate scientist. So we had New Zealand's top climate diplomat and top climate scientist jointly writing five uh, quite lengthy uh, articles uh, on 
the very thing that I've written this um, uh, my article on. Uh, they go over the fact that in all of the uh, negotiations through nearly 20 years from the early 1990s through until 2020, uh, the question of using offshore credits has always been very controversial. Uh, and uh, they say that it was uh, uh, that the Ministry for the Environment wrongly advised uh, the government uh, that uh, it was a legitimate way of getting your NDC up uh, and that it was there was no particular requirement to focus on domestic savings. Uh, now, uh, Macy says that's totally wrong, uh, that uh, the international dip diplomatic community frowns on uh, buying offshore credits, and countries do it only for special reasons and only in small amounts. Uh, and the fact that that advice, that wrong advice was given and helped to mislead uh, our cabinet we finished up being the only country out of the 194 where we have a huge amount of offshore credits as part of our NDC. In fact, our offshore credits makes up something like two-thirds of our total NDC where nobody else has more than a few, few percent. So we're a complete outlier on this, uh, and I think that helps if we were to decide that we are not going to proceed with it uh, by saying, you know, we're the only country in the whole world that did this damn thing uh, and it doesn't make sense to us anymore. So when we're doing those previous ones, we spent real money. Yeah. Do you know how much we've spent already? How much is spent on the... When, when uh, we bought these previous credits... That yes. the government crashed. Did we pay for them, like with real money? Uh, well, yes, our, our emitters did. Ah, I see. But so you might you be... had people like uh, Z Energy and uh, the refinery and uh, New Zealand Steel and well, all of the uh, Fonterra. They had to, uh, you know, for every ton that they emitted. They had to front up with a uh, with a credit, uh, and they were allowed to use foreign credits, and so they did uh, almost exclusively. And Macy says they were available for as little as twenty dollars a ton. And now we're talking two hundred and forty dollars a ton, yes. uh, and uh, that the country was awash in them uh, back in the uh, in twenty. 2015, 2016, when the Paris Agreement was uh, was enacted. And those credits have now been used, or uh, did the did you say that, because it's, I, I look, I feel stupid. I struggle to understand the stupidity of it. Have those credits been so-called used, i.e. offset, and therefore disappeared, or are they still sitting available to be used? And did you say Jacinda Dern came along and squashed them? Yes, um, they they were 
they were continuing to be used through till 2018 uh, when uh, yes, Jacinda then squashed them uh, and so they can no longer be used. Uh, so they can no longer a, buy uh, them and use them to offset. That's right. And the ones that were already – we already had – the government already had a large chunk of um, of credits because we had overperformed on the Kyoto yes. period. And when the Kyoto uh, commitment period ended in 2012, we had these millions of credits just sitting there. Uh, and in 2018 – uh, and we used them to go th- to carry through to 2020, and then the rest of them was written off because uh, the New Zealand government felt that they weren't fair gun. Uh, of course, that was what they'd been told by China and by every other competing operation around the world that they didn't have credits from Kyoto, so we shouldn't use ours. So we rolled over and said we wouldn't use ours. Because we could take those now and sell them for two hundred and seventy dollars a ton or whatever. We could undo the fact that we wrote them off. I'm not sure <laughs> whether that's a, an option or not. Uh, isn't it just a madness? But I mean, whatever tonnage, if if they wrote off a ton and just flushed it down the toilet and said you can't use it, at the moment you're saying that could be two hundred and forty dollars a ton. Yes. And there may be millions of tonnes or something flushed down the toilet. We don't know. Yes, but it it was done back five, six years ago. I see. Five years ago. And they may have expired. I – well, they don't expire, but, uh, you know, a a tonne less – a ton less in the atmosphere is a ton less in the atmosphere. But yeah. uh, in terms of the accounting between countries, uh, we have said uh, we uh, we wouldn't use things. We're we're above using such things in future. Uh, and indeed, this was uh, a lot of the criticism that was made by the. Uh, by James Shaw of the uh, of the previous national government, uh, that uh, the national government had done virtually nothing. They had uh, um, they had signed up to the Paris Agreement, they'd uh, int- enforced the ETS and all that, but it all came to nothing because they were using these old air credits. So then, so James Shaw was able to say, "We will going to stop using hot air credits, and that will make the New Zealand price of a unit uh, of a carbon unit uh, go up from under twenty five dollars to something like seventy five dollars, which is what it did." Mm. Mm. Well, Barry, you are a former minister in a national government. Have you had any indication that Chris Luxon and or the Minister of Finance, Nicola Willis, are aware of this? Uh, I'm sure there's no doubt that they're aware of it. Uh, There's... um, There's... uh, references 
regularly, uh, and it's in the mainstream media as well, when they talk about the difficult fiscal situation we're in, you'll always see them tossing climate change as part of the okay. reason we're in a difficult fiscal situation. But that's as far as it goes. Okay. Uh, they 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 don't want to talk about it. Uh, and despite all those articles in Business Desk, the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, so apart from um, good people like you, Rodney, uh, the public are going to remain uninformed, it seems. Well, I'm only informed of it because good people, well, the one good person like you writes it up in a way that I can digest. But even as I read it, it was so lunatic, I actually struggled to understand it because I'm thinking I'm missing something here because if what Barry is, is uh, telling me is true, our politicians have lost their marbles. And that's why I had trouble digesting it. It's truly, truly astonishing and disgusting and enraging. Oh, you, can, yes. you, you struggle to find words. Barry, we thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate your work. Uh, if you want to read this article, it's on the blog uh, bassettbrashandhide.com. Uh, search out Barry Brawl. Uh, Barry Brawl is, you used to have a climate. Is your blog, I don't think your climate science Coalition New Zealand Climate Science Coalition blog, it, it sort of trailed off a bit in terms of the contributions there. Did it, Barry? Or is it still? Well, we've we, we've had problems with the website, and the person who was responsible for it has uh, uh, has shuffled off the middle coil. So mm -hmm. uh, we are. Uh, a lot of the uh, the website is where all the, the the blog papers and other things appeared, and it's uh, it's not very workable at the moment. Okay, well, if you want to read back over Barry's writing, you can find it at the New Zealand Science Climate New Zealand Climate Science Coalition New Zealand si Climate Science Coalition. Yes. Yes. And um, there's wonderful material there. And uh, Barry's dissection of the articles is world class and gets quoted by world leaders uh, of the scientific community. Of course, here at home, he's a um, white dinosaur uh, <laughs> climate denier who has no qualifications in climate science. Uh, he knows more about it than James Shaw ever will. Uh, more about it than Jacinda Ardern ever will. More about it than um, Grant Robertson ever will. More about it than anyone in the National Party MPs ever will because he's devoted years and years and years to a very close reading and analysis of all the reports. And it's astonishing your depth of understanding of this issue, Barry. Well, it's, it's an interesting topic. Uh, but unfortunately, as you say, it's not something you can dip into and dip out of. You, uh, it, it's deliberately made much more complicated than yes. it needs to be, I must say. Yes. Uh, but it's, uh, it's of course, it, it keeps thousands, tens of thousands of bureaucrats busy all around the world, and they keep inventing uh, new acronyms and so forth. 
and new arguments for why it's a thing. Barry, thank you for your time. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. That was Barry Brill. Just picture it, $30 billion to be spent this decade uh, for nothing. And that's what our previous government signed us up for. And our present government hasn't yet dismissed and said no. So it's still sitting there on the books. Oh, my goodness. Hard to believe. You're on Real Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. There's almost nothing to say after Barry Brill. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, good news. We've got Jonathan Ailing. Ah, I'm going to have to check that I was pronouncing his name right when I get him on here. Jonathan Ailing's coming on from the Free Speech Union, a favourite with listeners, but a special favourite of mine. He's flying in for a 25-minute visit, and he and I are going to have a bit of a head-to-head, I fear. And to be honest, Jonathan's probably right. But I'm going to give my best shot. Jonathan, good morning. Nice to see you again, Rodney. Oh, I would never believe that we would need a free speech union here in New Zealand, and that if we did have one, that it would be so busy. No, that's right. Um, Unfortunately, the very places that have benefited the most from free speech and have been exemplars of free speech, primarily those uh, in the Anglosphere, countries like New Zealand, Canada, the UK, they are the ones that are uh, experiencing free speech erosion uh, the most in our current context. And so that's why we need all Kiwis to stand up and push back, I think. Absolutely. Now, Ailing, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, that's correct. Where does it come from? It's a Welsh name. Ah, so you're Welsh through to Africa. <laughs> my parents were humanitarian workers in, in Africa, yes, but um, but but my ancestors come from Wales, yeah. Ah, do you feel the pull of being Welsh? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, on occasion. I've, I've not been to Wales, but I would, I would thoroughly appreciate a chance to visit there. Ah, well, you get to see some great road signs. Now, before we get into our head-banging moment, you send out a, I love getting your communications. I get so many communications from organizations that I just, oh, I'll read this later. But I always stop what I'm doing and read yours, which is a testament to how well they're written, but also how interestingly they're written and what interesting stories they are. Your communication uh, this morning that I got had two stories. Lucy Rogers, no, has I got that right? That's correct, yeah. And then I didn't get your name. I just read the story. The IRD lady. Tell woman us about the name. 
Her name is Christine Massoff. Yeah, so these are two cases that we've taken on. We find ourselves um, quite busy in our in our cases at the moment. Cases is one of the streams that the Free Speech Union works on. So we have four streams, cases, campaigns, content, and coaching. And cases are the individual work that we take on to represent uh, individuals who have, who have faced discrimination, uh, perhaps by their employer or, or another um, context like that for speaking out. Lucy Rogers uh, is a name perhaps some of your listeners are familiar with. Uh, she was uh, protesting at a pro-Palestinian rally, uh, protest, counter-protesting, I should say, uh, in November last year. And she did so by holding up a sign which said, selective condemnation of genocide is evil. And she stood there silently on the side of, of Auckland, uh, Queen Street, and police came up to her and told her that unless she moved on and took down her sign, she would be arrested. Uh, they didn't know that Lucy is a criminal barrister herself and not one to be pushed around. And so she <laughs> told them that uh, that was not going to happen. And so they took her sign, they they tore it in, uh, 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 they tore it up in front of her, and then they placed her uh, under arrest and detained her for um, about ninety minutes in a police car, never charging her with actually any crime. She was then released, and uh, so incensed was she by this experience that she made sure uh, that she reached out to us and and expressed the, the severity of the situation. And we're going to be laying a high court complaint on her behalf. We think we have a very strong case of wrongful arrest and abuse of her protest and speech rights and 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 the concerning thing rodney in the story is that she was not the only person arrested uh in this manner on on that same day during that same protest so we understand as many as possibly six individuals were arrested on that day in a very similar fashion uh some were charged some others were not uh but we see a little bit more of a cultural modus operandi emerging here for police using uh, powers to detain individuals, but not charge them uh, in order to to keep the peace at a protest. And, and you might understand, you might have some sympathy for that for a moment. The question I have, though, is why is it the individual who is standing there, perhaps silently holding a sign or expressing uh, their, their opinion legally? Why are they the ones being arrested? If police are fearful that a mob is about to turn on this individual, then then arrest the people that are threatening violent, illegal activity. And I think this is so consistent with the way we approach many of these issues nowadays. I'm not going to say they're not complex. They need a, they need a nuanced, sophisticated approach. But we're putting the, the weight of uh, the burden of action on the wrong people. And actually, if someone is threatening to uh, to be so incensed by another's speech that they're going to take violent action, police need to stand up against them, put them under arrest, hold them to the law. Well, it's an interesting point, and I don't want to drag into our next argument that we're going to have, but it sort of relates to it in a funny way, because Miss Rogers would never deny the pro-Palestinian people their right to protest, would she? No, no, absolutely. But we now have a big chunk of society who protest and deny our right to protest. That's right, yep. Which comes to a point that I hope to make so scintillating, you'll fold up your tent and say, Rodney, I'm in awe. No, onto the eye, that's a shocking story. And, of course, what it means this wasn't a, a, a spur of the moment police action because she was not actually doing anything confrontational. This is the protocol that the police have. 
that if someone's actually count the protesting, arrest them because you might upset the mob, which That's is right. the opposite and of what the police should be doing. I'll, I'll give you a scoop here, Rodney. You didn't oh, know that we you, love scoops. We're going to be getting. Such, I've never had a scoop in my life. Such, such hot media material. But just today, we can't confirm this yet because it hasn't been done formally through the court yet. But we understand that police have said that they will be dropping charges against another individual, a man by the name of Daniel Maxwell, who was one of the cases that was um, that was uh, or, or he was also arrested on that same day as Lucy was. And 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 this is just their. Uh, the, the way they're going about it now. He was charged. They run him through a court appearance and some initial pleadings and that kind of thing. And then right before they actually have to make a case for why he should be arrested, they withdraw the charges, making their point that we can actually do what I want. And, and there's no recourse to that. They're wasting time. They're wasting public defenders' money. And uh, we said three months ago, I'll bet my bottom dollar, the police will withdraw charges on this. There's no way they'll take this to court. And then that's exactly what they did. It's a, it's a, it's a waste of, of uh, public funds and, and resources that are already scarce. But but more importantly, it, it, it shows a disregard that I'm increasingly concerned is emerging in our police. Not only for the fact that, yes, I guess we probably should have to protect protest rights and free speech rights, but that actually protest rights and free speech rights form a foundation on which liberal societies are built. Mm. And without without free speech in particular, uh, the role of police is going to become a lot harder because without free speech, people become far more violent. If you can't stand up and freely express your thoughts, if you find yourself uh, compelled into silence and suppressed, before long, it becomes too much. And people become far more violent in that case because they will insist on being able to express themselves in one form or another. So, here, you know, I'm grateful for the relationship that we have with Andrew Costa, the police commissioner, and the opportunity we've had to engage with his senior leadership team. And our continual advice for them is it's much easier for your jobs to believe in free speech than to try and suppress it. Well, and you would have thought it was a constitutional thing. That's Tell me right. the IRD story. The IRD case is a, is a situation of a woman called Christine Massoff, who works for our Inland Revenue Department. Uh, IRD has taken it upon themselves to place period products in all bathrooms uh, at IRD premises because they believe, you know, individuals of, of all sorts and stripes may menstruate. And so... Uh, so this is like a... Cover your ears if you're sensitive. This is like a tampon dispenser in the men's toilets. I would imagine so. I'd also imagine reciprocals of 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 dirty okay. products. And because uh, when you're I'll, a man, you're always looking for these things, right? Uh, Rodney, I'll defer to others on this. I'm not much of an expert <laughs> in that regard, so I haven't I haven't qualified exactly what this entailed. But I, that that's what I understand was the case. Christine Massoff is a gender critical feminist, and uh, and and found it ironic uh, that that period products would now be appearing in men's bathrooms. And so uh, went on what's called IR Women's Forum. It's an internal chat forum for women working at IRD specifically to discuss issues relating to their work and their uh, experiences there. And she said, quite sarcastically, wonderful that they're finally going to put period products in all our bathrooms. Just isn't it interesting that now men can menstruate, suddenly uh, these businesses are, are, are stomping up to, to pay for them to have free period products. I mean, it's very funny. And it's also a quite a uh, pungent point. I think, it, it, I mean, 
putting aside the gender critical aspect of it, her assertion perhaps that men actually can't menstruate, the, the feminist argument there, well, actually, it's only once men are associated to the space that, that government starts putting funding into it. I think that's a very interesting point she's making. Uh, her colleagues didn't agree, though. They were grossly offended. And uh, and and so um, uh, she was was warned and given a letter of expectations that said, if you think anyone may be upset or offended by a comment that you're going to make, your job is to self-censor. And you've been warned now, if you don't do that in the future, uh, we will pursue further disciplinary charges. And, and this is just simply unacceptable. Her manager went so far as to say that because IRD have endorsed a policy of gender inclusivity, the organization now has taken a position on the transgender question and it is therefore the role of every employee of IRD to either speak in accordance with that policy or to not speak at all. And that's rubbish. And Rodney, it, it, it just has no space in it. We, we can't give this the time of day. Our internal revenue agency has no need of a policy on gender inclusivity. It doesn't need to have a policy on, on, on the, the, the dynamical role of transgenderism in our society. These important questions, it doesn't relate to our tax take though. And so to require a, a, a policy professional or an administration professional to succumb to a compelled position on an issue like this is the opposite of what it means to live in a free and liberal society. And we are quite confident, as we are with the Lucy Rogers case, that this is an opportunity to set a strong precedent in this case, that employers and in Lucy's case, police cannot operate with the disregard for protests and speech rights that, that have, have unfortunately become increasingly common. Well, good for you and good for the speech union. And you're not just a great cause, but you're prosecuting it with a, a, a wonderful alacrity and to great effect. So thank you for that. Uh, by the way, it sort of says something about the IRD that they're going to internally police such a contentious political topic. It also suggests that us gender critical theorists might be more subject to audit. You know what I mean? Because that where does it end? Where does it end when you're the most powerful government department and the police? I think that's a very good point, Rodney. Look, I want to be clear. I, I, I have no reason to think at this stage that is the case. But no. this is absolutely where this line of thinking and these lines of belief lead. At that point, individuals should be targeted because they are the wrong kind of thinkers in our society. Mm. And wrong think must be crushed out. And so, uh, absolutely, where does this end? I shudder to think. Now, onto the topic that we're going to bash heads about and try and get an understanding of the difference. So I'm a free speech absolutist. I think you should be able to say and think anything that you like, with that exception. Now, there are what I'd call torts in this. So the classic example, I think it was Justice Holmes pointed out, you can't be in a crowded theatre and maliciously sh shout fire and cause a stampede and people get killed. Uh, you can't stand out someone's someone's house and say, let's attack Rodney Hyde's house and kill him. Uh, that's the limit. But it's got to be very close and tight uh, to be that speech that's limited. You can't be saying, uh, you can happily say in such a society, all capitalists should be strung up and killed. You can say that. 
because it's not proximal to a particular person That's being exactly attacked right. and killed. Now, mongrel mob patches, should they be allowed as a matter of free speech? Yes, for two reasons. Yeah, part of me wants to say yes, but I fall on the side of saying no. Jonathan, you go. Rodney, free speech does two things in our society. One is very admirable, laudable, and normative, and the other is very pragmatic. The first is that free speech allows stimulating conversations between reasonable individuals like ourselves to go back and forth, to allow the best ideas to win, to, to let the marketplace of ideas function. It allows the development of knowledge. It allows the freedom of conscience. It allows us to be true to our inner workings and to grow together. I often say that free speech is the foundation of human rights. It is more important than freedom of conscience because actually, you, you can't, we, we, as humans, we don't hold beliefs in isolation. We hold beliefs in society together with others. We form our beliefs in that way. And so unless we have the opportunity to do debate and form beliefs, our freedom of conscience actually will, will ultimately not be worth much. That is one reason why free speech matters. And I don't think that argument applies to this because gangs aren't reasonable. They're peddlers of misery and violence. They absolutely deserve the full force of the law to be brought against their illegal activities. And they have no interest in engaging in a reasonable conversation around whether or not they should be dealing meth or whether domestic violence abuse is an issue. That's not going to apply in this case. However, on a far more pragmatic level, there's a second reason why free speech matters, and that it stops us from killing each other, and it helps us know who our enemy is. Enemy or opponent, I, I, I would probably more for, uh, be inclined to say opponent, actually. Uh, if, if I'm driving down the road, I want to know if I've got a gang member driving beside me on his bike. If I cut him off and I accidentally, you know, if he accidentally dings my bumper, uh, I'm not going to get out there and start abusing him. I'm probably going to carry myself with a little bit more caution. Why? Yes, because of the uh, the violence and the criminality that is incumbent with gang activity. And so I want to be really clear that we are very sympathetic to communities that live with gangs in their midst. However, taking patches away won't make them safer. It actually stands to make them less safe because they don't know who the individuals that are inclined towards violence and criminal criminality in their midst are. The second point is also that this is a full fool's errand of a policy. There is no way to actually effectively ban patches. If it's not a patch, it'll be a particular handkerchief. If it's not a particular handkerchief, it'll be a particular type of pen. If it's not, at what point do we stop? gangs from being able to associate with each other in any sort of commonality which they will then use to demarcate themselves as of a particular type this will this policy will only compound grievance uh, while i i hesitate to say i have too much sympathy for gangs i'm sure there are a variety of reasons that ind individuals end up in gangs and i do have sympathy for some individuals in some gangs who for whom life has never presented any other opportunities than to be part of that world. And th that is only a portion. There are others who have chosen to be out there and, and, and they deserved the full force of the law again. But what I would say is they already have the perception that the man is against them, that, that, that the, the world is seeking to oppose them. And this will only validate that belief further. 
I sat down with uh, with Act Minister Nicole McKee earlier this week. She's Minister for Courts and, and was very interested in our concerns around this policy. And I said that uh, uh, an individual who accompanied with me in that meeting is Dane Giroux, who I think you know, Rodney, uh, a, a council member of the Free Speech Union. He grew up in, in South Auckland as an ethnic minority and saw the attraction that exists to uh, to join gangs, not least because the, the individuals who are hard done by, who have been oppressed, who the world is against, but they're making a go of it. And I worry that this policy will, will make people less safe, will make violence more common, and will actually do nothing to address the issues of isolation and vulnerability that gang members feel that they are um, associated with. Very good. Uh, by the way, have you read a book well, you should read a book called, I think it's called Into the Red or In the Red, and it's by a former Mongol mob member, whose name I forget, who goes around New Zealand selling his book, and it's a book of his life, and you understand perfectly how he ended up into a gang. Absolutely. A combination of sexual abuse and racism and uh, putting in jail for really misdemeanors and going on to a hard life. But it describes gang life. Look, it might be very flattering if you're an, uh, uh, to be an outlaw, but it's a great read to understand what gang life is all about. No holes barred. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my counterposition. Wonderful. This started by... Uh, Jonathan, and I sort of changed my mind while writing a reply text. He asked me, would I still support the ban on gang patches? And I started off by saying no, because apparently when I voted in 2009, I think I supported Michael Laws in his push to ban gang patches from the streets of Wanganui. A decision that was later overruled by the High Court. Yes, I think I did. I can't remember. But uh, if Jonathan says I did, then I did. But I said... I agree with you on the futility of banning gang patches because they'll just find some other device and in a way it'll increase their notoriety. However, I actually believe we should stomp on the gangs. And it goes like this. Something deep within me, which initially I couldn't intellectualize or present an argument for, says to me that it's very wrong to allow young thuggish men to dress up in an intimidatory fashion and walk down the street intimidating everyone they walk past, so much so that I would cross the street. I would hate to be in a McDonald's or a bar don't go to bars, but if I did, with my children and have these gangsters and outlaws turn up and sit beside us and their bad language and their poor behaviour. However, in having all these thoughts, I think that's just not right. That can't be allowed. I say, oh, well, it's a free country, you know, free speech. Um, They're not actually breaking the law. They're just You know, there's nothing that the police can do because they actually haven't done anything wrong. They've not stolen a burger yet. But many, many years ago, I can remember it was in 1986, I think, 
I read to Karl Popper's Open Society and Its Enemies, which is one of the most life-changing and significant books I've read. And he wrote it, interestingly, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and during the war. And he had a footnote, and it was the paradox of tolerance. And it's a tricky one, because there's no hard and fast rule. But it's this concept that you live in a tolerant society where you say, have free speech, you allow free speech. But what do you do to those who oppose free speech? and would use violence to shut you down. Now, Sir Carl Papa was wise enough to say you have to be careful about this, because obviously if there's no threat to you, you just ignore it, and they you expose them. You show them up for who they are, and free speech wins. But this was a book written against fascism and the rise of Nazism, and how in this book he explained it actually was not something that just came about out of nothing, that it had a long philosophical tradition amongst our intellectual leaders, and that this had taken this had taken um, root within the university system and was a consequence of bad philosophies and bad ideas. And he said that a tolerant society had to reserve itself the right to vigorously and violently put down intolerance because potentially, if left unchecked, it could destroy a tolerant society. It has to put down tolerance of intolerance of a particular kind. And you said it the first time, Rodney, but you didn't yes. say it the second time. Intolerance okay, tell me. of a violent nature. Yes, I'm happy to stick by and, that. And, and 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 that's why up until that point you you were characterizing Popper very correctly. And and some of your listeners may be aware, uh Popper is endlessly mischaracterized in his paradox of tolerance. So I think I think uh, if if you are getting your news off Twitter, which is an unfortunate state to be in, but not a very uncommon one, uh, you might think that that Karl Popper's intolerant uh, paradox of tolerance was was his general thesis of the entire book. As no, it was a footnote. As you correctly pointed out, it was simply a footnote, but it has taken on such um, weight because it is an argument that is very effectively used against things like free speech. Because, as you say, the, these are balances. Um, you you use the word free speech uh, absolutist, and, and and I find that an interesting self identification. I don't I don't even know if I would call myself a free speech. No, I don't think you are. But 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 what I would suggest is that well. A, a question or a challenge I would have for you is, is is what ideology or what way of thinking has been effectively suppressed through censorship. Now, now actions, there are many actions that do not occur because of laws and and and, and the monopoly of, of violence that the state legitimately has. But that we, 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 we don't operate that way as humans with regards to our thoughts. If we try and suppress perspectives and thoughts and expression, which is really what a gang patch is, we actually find they flourish more and more. And I don't know if there are many examples. I, I'm not familiar with many of, of areas where 
suppression has actually effectively, over a medium to long term, succeeded in suppressing certain ideas or expression. In the short term, of course it works. But before long, you'll find that you push it into the ground and like seed, it bubbles up more than you realized. And and I I think there's a contradiction, Rodney. And and, and you, you you referred several times to this being an argument in the introduction. Look, on I'm the enjoying contrary, this, Jonathan, because I, I have, you're starting to struggle. I can feel it. <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no interest in arguing with you because I have a lot of sympathy for this perspective. But I think there's a contra contradiction in your claims. Yes. Because what I hear you saying is that uh, it won't work, but it's the right thing to do. No, no, not at all. Will will this policy work for the stated aims of making individuals less vulnerable to real violence as opposed to just a sentiment of feeling vulnerable to the violence, less vulnerable to real violence and actual consequences for criminal uh, accomplices? You make all good points. And the particularly good point is the physical violence and intimidation. So I have, because if you don't put the physical violence in there, then you are in the crowd that we are opposed to, That's which right. is those that would say, I'm at the IRD. And what... Uh, and Christine's sarcasm makes me feel violent. Absolutely. And I feel the same way as if the mongrel mob had just walked into our offices, right? And I thoroughly agree with that point. And that's why it's a tough point to draw. It's a very tough point to draw. I also agree with you that banning the gang patches is neither here nor there. Uh, it doesn't deal with the underlying problem and all the rest of it. But if you're living in a community where the mongrel mob or a gang inhabit, that community can be living in fear and can be intimidated. Why? Because of the very nature of the gang. Uh, specifically because at the moment in New Zealand, they are getting away with criminal activity. That well, they're getting away violent. with But their whole reason to it is is violent, antisocial, criminal behaviour. Sure. That's their purpose. Look, every, every time they they outwork that raison d'etre. You know what? We're going to end up agreeing. Because what I would say, forget the gang patch. Go after those gangs. Chase them down. Hassle them. Hound them out of existence. And do so... Every time they step out of line, if they drop a piece of paper on the sidewalk, arrest them. I, I, Throw I, the book and, at them. And and and, that's and a, I that, wouldn't that's... I wouldn't expect me if I dropped the piece of paper to be hounded and arrested. But I actually think we have to go after the gangs, harass in hand. And I believe, by the way that the police, that we don't need laws to do this. We have all the laws that are ne right. necessary. We have all the ability that necessary. But what's the problem? The police would rather hound our friend Lucy. on the Lucy on the side of the street holding up a sign. They'd rather arrest her than arrest someone from the mongrel mob. 
I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Rodney, I was privileged to uh, sit down with the police leadership team at the police leadership conference uh, last year. And as I discussed with a, a number of them informally, some of the laws that the Labour government at the time that w was proposing to put through Parliament, they said, we already have so many laws we can't enforce. Mm. I, I, I think many, uh, uh, and, and as a former politician, I'm sure you can relate to this, what Mark Mitchell is doing here is not putting forward an effective policy that he thinks is going to transform the face of criminality in New Zealand and make communities feel that they're genuinely much more safer. What he is doing is putting a political response out there to say, we hear you and we're going to do something about it. And I can't judge him at one level for that. He is trying to communicate in a political context through a policy that won't work. And if it wasn't violating a basic civil liberty like free speech, I would be rather indifferent about it. New Zealanders do have a right to feel safe in their own homes. They do have a right to feel safe in their own communities. And far too many of them do not exist in that context. So as you say, use the laws we have and absolutely take it to them. I couldn't agree and let me be, let me let me suggest a word of caution. I wouldn't hesitate, I wouldn't presume to tell you how to do your job or, or how to suck eggs. I'll tell you why I wouldn't presume to do that. You're doing such a fantastic job. Uh, you're doing a fantastic job. But I worry because you're a very intellectual person and very committed to the principles. But here we are as Kiwis. And we don't know all the arguments. We haven't read Karl Popper or John Stuart Mill. We haven't read Plato's Republic. But I'm living in a little community where those bastard mongrel mob bastards, twice, walk down the street intimidating everyone and using standover tactics. Actually, depriving people of their livelihood, scaring the bejesus out of people going about their business, and actually extorting just by their presence. Now, it's a tricky one because if you stand up and say, oh, well, they should be allowed to wear their gang patches, it sort of sounds like these guys think that's okay. You actually have to explain, no, that behaviour isn't okay because they are denying you, at the very least, your freedom of speech, actually, your freedom of movement, your freedom to go about your business. Their mere presence does that. And so there's this great point you have to make almost, and that's why I said in my text, no, I wouldn't support the banning of the patch, but I'd support going after those gangs and absolutely destroying them. Get the IRD off putting the period products in the men's toilets and get them on to auditing every day every gang in the country, like they do to plumbers, builders, shopkeepers. Go after them, and they won't. And there's two possibilities for why they won't. There's a logical one. 
which is you're a police officer, what would you rather do? Issue a speeding ticket to Jonathan and Rodney or knock on the door of the gang headquarters? Well, I know what I'd rather do. But there's a second one. There's so much money and power tied up in these gangs, you just wonder what the corruption level is. I think it's high. And so all I'm doing is suggesting to you, and so, yeah, the gang patches aren't here or there. It's the whole thing. Do we agree? I, I, I think we do, sir. And, and I accept that this presents a, a real challenge, and not, not because Kiwis are stupid and not because they're malicious, but because actually we all make decisions out of a very emotional places quite often. And when mm. you feel afraid, that's an incredibly uh, incredible motivator. I, I do think, though, that as we seek to communicate to our supporters why this matters, why this matters to all of us, illustrations help as well. And I think, you know, there's two of us in this conversation. We've probably got at least three definition of what a gang is if we thought yes. about it. And my concern is that before long, with it under a different government in a different context that could be not so far away, um, a woman wearing a Speak Up for Woman t-shirt, that could be interpreted as a gang patch. Um, you know, the idea of a, of a group coordinating together to legitimize malicious speech called the Free Speech Union, wearing uh, emblems associated with them, that could be a gang patch. What does a gang patch mean? Who is a gang? Is, is a religious community that wears a religious emblem, could that be considered a gang patch? There isn't a statutory definition of gang. There is a list of gangs, but that's a political process, process where um, parliamentarians decide which groups sits on the gang register. And so my concern is that while today we may think it's legitimate to silence uh, individuals who are peddling misery and who are dealing in violence, tomorrow the other side may have those same powers. And do we want them to subjugate their views on us in that way as well? And that's why we, oh, we concur. push into this. I concur. And that's why it's important not to have a law that targets gangs, but to have a policy that targets gangs, and to be very, very mindful that such is the state of play in New Zealand, and these are, this is why principles are important, such is the state of play in New Zealand is, is that you're absolutely right. If we could, if we can have a policy that, say, these characters in this town are going to be targeted by the police, and basically run out of business in town because of their criminal behavior. And we're going to hit them for everything. Tax evasion, tax avoidance, littering, uh, public nuisance, all the rest of it. Well, you and I know that that same tactic could be, and in fact is being used in Western countries, and indeed is being used here in New Zealand against individuals, that we can be harassed and we can be targeted. Because... You and I, we probably break a hundred laws a day unwittingly, right? And so if we were being, someone was looking over our shoulder, they could come at us. But what I'd suggest is proper leadership at a political level, proper leadership at the level of the police, they know a bloody gang when they see one. Now, we can say, oh, well, what you do for the mongrel mob today could be turned on the Rotary Club tomorrow. And you say, yeah, it could be. But you'd like to think that in a free society, you wouldn't let it 
And the way and we preserve like that free society is through every day going out and making the cultural fight for why these values matter to everyone. Yes, else. but you have to make it matter in a way, Jonathan, where you take the people with you. Absolutely. And that's why you have to be very careful on this matter of gangs and you have to have a principled position. Just like you're not a free speech absolutist, like me, because I tend to the extremes, and you say there are limits to free speech, You, I think you've got to have a little cautionary thing there about these gangs because everyday Kiwis know they're wrong and they are wrong. And you... you, 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 you a gang could turn a community into a prison camp. That's wrong. I think that we've done pretty good. I love your work, Jonathan. I love the debate about the uh, paradox of tolerance. And again, I make the uh, interesting analogy where you have these pro-Palestinians happy to protest demanding their right to protest, but not allowing anyone else to. That's right. Hypocrisy stinks, doesn't it? Well, that's, and like, in a funny way, you're getting to the point where, no, I'm tolerant, but not that much. Jonathan, wonderful to hear from you. That was Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. What a great guy. you got no idea of the work this man does or the union does, and you heard two great stories behind the scenes preserving our most fundamental right before private property before freedom of conscience, is the ability just to talk and speak out and speak your mind. It was such a hard-won principle, such a hard-fought. Even in the birth of the United States of America, it was hard to get freedom of religion and freedom of speech embedded into the Constitution. They did it, and here we are, 2024, having to have a union to stand up for us. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh my goodness, Politics Explained with Tane Webster. Hard to believe, but this is the first one of the year. And it's been a long time, Tane. Yeah, it has been. So, I mean, we could we, we could have done one last week, but I think you, you had enough other oh, conflicts. So. We're getting... We're getting into the groove again. And I tell you what's been troubling. I tell you what's been troubling me before you ask me a question. Yeah. This government. Yeah, that's that's what we're going to talk about. Or the first half. We're going to go, yeah, what 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 are your thoughts on 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 how the Prime Minister is going? I mean, specifically Chris Luxon, but if you want to talk about the government generally. It's terrible. I hate to do this to myself, and I hate it to could, do it to listen. I don't think it's that bad, Rodney. It's okay. terrible. And I was always thinking it would be so, and I can't tell you how overjoyed I was to see the coalition agreements. And like I said, I you know hung them up in my bedroom and cuddled them every night. I was just so overjoyed for New Zealand because I think yes, we've got a shift. We've got a change of direction. It's seismic, and we're going off into a better place. And I expected the coalition agreement to be the sort of first part of that. And it seems to me now it was the high-water mark. 
and now it's just Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis. And here is how I would describe them. Look, they're great people and they're great politicians. And they'd be perfect if it was, I don't know, 1990, 2008. But it's not. There's so much. New Zealand has gone so far off the rails, to me, where I'm looking at it, in every sphere. It's sort of like cleaning out the Augean stables. It is rotten. And I look at them, and I feel as though it's just steady as she goes. Change a wee bit at the margin to show we're not labour, but carry on. The lines in the sand that have been drawn, to me, are little performative signals. And I haven't involved myself in this, but the idea that they need to have a public consultation on the terms of reference on the COVID inquiry shows you how bereft they are. Mm. Because if you were genuine, you'd hit the deck running with the terms of reference. And all you need is a clause and any other thing that takes the attention of the commission. You'd fight the existing commissioners would have been fired and a new group would be brought in. But here we are now heading into March. Oh, we'll consult with the public. Oh, my goodness. And then Luxon, and this is the bit that drove me to despair, he turns up to the big gay up. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And gets heckled and booed, and that's a story. And you're thinking, why? Why on earth ever would he do that? It was, it was National Anti Act, I think. Yes. And, and the other parties on the. Yes. And funnily enough, Act can go along because, unlike me, they're into that stuff, right? But he, but Luxing doesn't realise that this isn't a thing about supporting people who have a different sexual preference, which I, I support. You do what you like, knock yourself out. This has become a thing now about men being women and teaching our kids that they could be a girl, not a boy, and having boys in girls' sports and changing rooms. This is a hugely extremist fringe position that he's aligned himself with. Mm. Happily so. And he'd go back. And I'm thinking, doesn't he understand what's at stake and what's happening in our schools? Then I see him say, oh, yeah, we're, going to, we're not going to support David Seymour's Treaty Principles Bill. We're just going to agree to put it into a select committee. Well, doesn't he care? Does he agree? Does he agree that the treaty means co-governance? Yes or no? 
Because you're excited because they say, oh, we're going to not have co-governance in water. But he's not happy. He seems happy with the current, the principles of the treaty or whatever we decide, whatever the latest extremist Maori activist decides they are. Right? That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's not leadership. That's just drift. So what's going to happen is New Zealand's been put, to me, in this terrific spiral by the Ardeen Robertson government across every front, particularly cultural and family. And Luxon's going to come along and he's going to just drift along and ride it. And then he can say, oh, I was um, prime minister. Big job, I did it. And, oh, I did a couple of things. But where's the hero? come to save us, right? And there isn't one. There's no prospect of one. And um, I got this way because I love listening to a podcast by Victor Davis Henson, who's an extraordinarily um, encyclopedic man, particularly on military history and the classics. And I can't believe what he gets done in a day because he runs a farm and he's an extraordinary guy. He's he's in his 70s now. But he just he loves Westerns. And he sees Westerns as copying the Greek plays, Greek stories. And he describes how you have in a classic Western, you have the gunslinger, the man with a bad past, a tortured past, right into this town. And the town's gone rotten because the bandits uh, got all the people terrified and the sheriff is terrified. He's just a nice guy, the sheriff. But he's not a gunslinger. And his gunslingers are running the town and everyone's terrified. And the stranger rides into town, Shane, let's call him, or the man with no name and the power rider, he rides into town. And he's scary and he's different and he's a loner. And he shoots all the bad guys, cleans the town up, and rides off because he can't live in a decent society. He's not a nice person because he's a killer and he's prepared to kill without mercy. And he says, that's what sometimes you feel as though you need. And he described Trump in those terms, not as a normal politician, not as a politician you'd particularly like if you were in um, a society that was functioning. But what happens when you're in a society that is no longer functioning, that's rotten to it, the politics is rotten, as we're seeing in America and as we're seeing here in New Zealand? You're actually looking for that gunslinger to ride into town. He's not a person you like or want to be around. He's not a person you want to call dad or your neighbor. But every now and you need them. And um, that's how I feel. You, you need some kamikaze sort of guy or girl to come in and just say, that department's gone. That's not even a question. This is the COVID inquiry. It's not a question. The COVID inquiry you could write on the back of an envelope in five minutes. Not a big hard thing. 
the treaty principles, you just say, no, this is a recipe for surrendering our democracy and our parliament to a bunch of activists. We're not having it. Bang. Ministry of Women's Affairs, it's gone off the rails. It's gone, dead. You, you, can't, you can't have this um, talking, this uh, transgender thing in any government and, and, and shutting people down. Free speech, that's it. No department will be censoring its own staff. Not allowed. These basic principles, they'd all be done in the first week if you had that Greek or Western hero ride into town. And to their opponents that stood up to fight them, they'd just shoot them down without mercy. Of course, not literally. But Lux and One thing that, what you're saying kind of reminds me of is, uh, have you heard Have you heard Dewa, one of our new new hosts? Yes. He's doing a summer series. Yes. Yeah, he, he mentioned great. something. Yeah, he mentioned something when he was talking with Paul. I think he said, you know, uh, not just in New Zealand but overseas and other Western countries as well. You have the centre right. They are, you know, they're sometimes in power, but they never wield the power. Like no. they, they they don't actually, no. and it's because I think people on that side of politics. Part of it is that they want to be left alone, so they're not like assertive people. And then the things that need to get done don't always get done. And and so it is kind of up to us to help push them over the line, help encourage them and pressure them. Yes, to it is. It is. And and um, it's extremely important that that we do this because you feel as though, well, I don't feel as though. I know now there's a there has developed with MMP and with the modern world and the shocking media, there has developed a beltway of a power elite that politically run the country. Of course, they don't really run the country because they don't produce anything. It's, it's truck drivers and farmers and shopkeepers and business people and manufacturers and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters who run the country but you have this political group and grouping the iwi bosses the do-gooding organizations that have, have an elite and they all know each other and they all talk to each other and the journalists are in amongst it feeding away and they decide everything and you see it with the interchangeability of their roles jumping between that job and that job and this job and that job. And they're disconnected utterly from us. An MMP and the rise of the list MP and the importance of party leader versus FPP, where an MP, every MP, he or she had to return to the electorate and confront the farmer, confront the shopkeeper, confront the manufacturer, confront the mother, confront the dad, and be held to account by them. Doesn't happen now. Likewise with our media. Our media was in every little town and was writing about community stories and had to confront us. Not anymore. And so there's this huge yawning distance. So much so 
that governments around the world and here in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, had to take control of the internet and shut citizens down simply for disagreeing with them. That's extraordinary, right? Because not only are they, they knew about our dissent, but they shut it down and were prepared to use violence to do so. So that's why when I reflect on it over the break, I'm so bitterly disappointed because what's changed? But, I mean, I don't know if I'm not prepared with a full list of achievements, but there have been some, like they reversed the English language on the departments for, for I think, for Health New Zealand, was it? That You know, they've, they've, they've done a few things like that. They abolished the Maori Health Authority. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a few other things. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, and good on them. But, like, that is a bit at the margin. Yeah, it's like basic stuff we expected. So yeah, and but I mean, we still get all our letters from government departments that are written with English interspersed with Maori, yeah. right? Like, no, they, like, those government departments, those government departments aren't going to change. None of those government departments are scared of Luxon. Now, I, you know, and I mean this genuinely. Um. Those chief executives are going to just wait it out. None of them have been fired. None of them have been put on notice. Um, and we knew, going back a long time, that government departments were scared of Muldoon. And we all thought it was a bad thing. But actually, given how our government departments are being run and what they're doing to the people of New Zealand, they should be bloody scared of a prime minister coming in, given the feeling of the electorate. Well, given the feeling of me. <laughs> Maybe I can't speak for the electorate, but right, I can speak for this audience. Right, we we are angry beyond belief. Right, we feel as though this isn't our country. It's not. It's not. It's not where we we live. We fear for our children. And, oh, yes, Luxon said that the he's collapsed some Maori health authority and he's reversed three waters. Has he said co-governance and partnership are no longer a thing? No. Has he said that legislatively we're going to end this as a thing because it's not in the treaty, Maori or English? No. In fact, he specifically said he's going to keep it a thing. Um, has he said... Boys are boys, girls are girls. Yes, there's some med medical oddities. And, you know, when you're an adult, you might find that you prefer someone of your own sex. But we're not going to talk about it with kids because they're boys and girls with enough to handle. Has he said that? No. So I am, I guess that's too why I like the show because we talk about it with, having people who are dissenters on, but also we talk about real things like gardening. And that's why I love, you know, Voices for Freedom and Rally Check Radio because it doesn't drone on about this stuff, which we aren't going to be rescued from above. 
We're going to have to rescue ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. We're going to have to protect them from this poor thinking that is abroad and that is doing such a lot of damage. And you can witness it constantly when you see young people switched into their mobile phones. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, what's that content telling them? What's that teaching them? Mm. So, and of course, that was the other topic you suggested to me, a bit of history. Yeah, so we thought we'd kind of have a, a wee sort of sub-series within Politics Explained where we could talk about New Zealand political parliamentary history uh, because it's something that I would like to learn more about and I know that there's listeners out there who'd like to learn more about it as well. We have touched on these things in the past and we did get good, um, you know, good, good feedback from them. So, yeah, today I thought I could ask you about uh, the New Zealand Party uh, how it came to be and it pretty ended pretty quickly, but it it was successful while it while it uh, well it while, had while the, it, 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 the, the New Zealand Party was the creation of Sir Bob Jones, who's still with us. Yep. he's a rencontreur, a very successful property uh, owner and investor, and successful his entire life at it. His brother's Lloyd Jones, the author, so a very talented family. And he was a great supporter of Sir Robert Muldoon's. And then Sir Robert Muldoon, with the economic pressures of oil prices and falling commodity prices and whatnot, he got the economy completely off track. And he was a very successful politician, a very powerful politician, and he ran his cabinet he ran his party, and he ran parliament. And so he was the single source of power in the system. And he relied on common sense, and that's a very bad guide when it comes to economics uh, because you look at things and you think, oh, I know how we could stop inflation. We'll just fix prices. But, of course, if you're still printing money madly, you you're, all you're doing is devaluing everyone's wages and, 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 and prices and incomes. You're going to wreck the economy because you're not dealing with the cause. You're only dealing with the symptom. So he ran New Zealand economically into the ground and with price controls, wage controls, interest controls, import licensing, couldn't take money overseas. What you could buy was decided by parliament. What you could sell was decided by Parliament. It was extraordinary. And it was David Longy, who was great at quips, said it was like a New Zealand economy was run like a Polish shipyard, which back then, of course, was a was you know communist. And Bob Jones fell out of bed with it. Everyone did. Everyone that was thinking about the direction of New Zealand fell out of bed with it. And so the New Zealand Party was born to contest the 1984 election as Bob Jones's leader. And it was very exciting because it, you know, caught up with a whole new way of thinking and it really introduced New Zealanders to free market thinking because Bob Jones is a libertarian. And the libertarian debate was had heading into that election. They got 12% in the election because people could safely vote for the New Zealand party as a protest against national without having to vote Labour. 
because the people that were protesting against National were by and large uh, lab, uh, National voters, but they didn't want to vote Labour because tribally they couldn't. And so National lost the 1984 election and Labour swept to power. But they were presented with a total economic catastrophe. This is where you have that Shane Jones sort of, the Shane, not Shane Jones, that Shane, the cowboy, riding into town to fix things. Um, because every bit of policy that Labour could think about economically in terms of controlling the economy, Sir Robert Muldoon had already done. And the country was hemorrhaging and dying on its feet. People couldn't see it. Not everyone could see it. But something had to give. And the government of the new government had no options. Literally, they, it was like out of money. And so Rogernomics was born because the Treasury for years and years had been beavering away on what we could do to save New Zealand. And within Roger Douglas, they found a Minister of Finance who's prepared to champion good ideas, and their ideas were good. And they were prepared to do things for the good of the country and cause unimagined pain because we had to write all the decisions for years and years and years, right through the post-war period, that had protected us from the pain of the real world. And all that pain was encapsulated at that moment. And it was the burden of the pain was directed at the new government, of course. But, of course, the real cause of that pain was previous governments who had run up the debt, who had made the bad policies that now needed to be corrected. Subsidies. Farmers were being heavily subsidised just to farm. 50% of their income, oftentimes. Mm. Those subsidies were removed overnight. Can you imagine it? Farmers went to the wall. Banks worked with them to try and protect many of them. Business, whole entire businesses closed. Industries closed. As New Zealand had to reorientate itself. And the interesting thing is that if that government had hesitated and you thought there was a way through without having to endure that pain, the pain would have continued. But literally the government didn't blink for four or five years and it held the line and people said, these guys are real. Farmers went to complain to, the, to Roger Douglas about the removal of subsidies and Roger Douglas sent Richard Peel to talk to them. And he, he literally, Owen Jennings was at the meeting. It was Peter Alworthy and Owen, Owen, Owen Jennings. And they went to see him on the budget night to complain about the subsidies removal and farmers not being able to survive. And Richard Preble famously jumped on the desk. <laughs> jumped on his desk and told them that they could all get, you know, a naughty word because they'd never supported Labour. They'd robbed the taxpayer blind. They should be farmers and proper people, and their subsidies weren't coming back. And so Peter Alworthy, who was very pat a patrician and like Christ College type guy, walks out and turns down and he says, hmm, I think the government's mind's made up on this one. <laughs> and so there was that period, and the New Zealand economy was wrenched. And then over time, mums and dads, 
manufacturers, farmers, shopkeepers, reorientated the economy to the new reality, which was reality, not a cosseted reality of communism or socialism or a protected economy. And we dug our way out. And we had a glorious period of coming right. But before we could come right, of course, politicians get back in power and have, again, driven up debt, made bad decisions, and put us back to this place. And so I guess in my mind, I was looking for a prime minister, not of the 90s or 2000s, who says, look, we're on track, steady as she goes. I was looking for a prime minister to say, no, where we're at is not acceptable and we're changing. Not happening. So there you go. That's my view. And the New Zealand party was significant because the debate had been had before the 1984 election and people who had voted Labour to deliver socialism actually got the New Zealand party's policies. It's crazy, right? That was crazy. And of course, that's why we had to have MMP. And um, because people felt betrayed. But that was the history of the New Zealand Party. It had a dramatic impact on New Zealand politics without ever putting an MP in place, which is why I support yeah. third parties. And it was rounded up and dissolved in, in um, 1993. So it's, it's only in existence for just under 10 years. Yes, but to be fair, once Bob Jones left, it was gone. And so right. it sort of survived on with some of some party organisers. But Bob Jones lost the election and famously went fishing. And he was up happily fishing on a river. And Rod Vaughan from TVNZ, when TVNZ had money, hired a helicopter. Oh, yeah, I've seen this, yeah. To hire, to go and interview Bob Jones. And uh, he came stalking up and scared all of Bob Jones's fish and disturbed his fishing. And Bob Jones chased him and boxed him in the nose and broke it. <laughs> you wouldn't see that now. And it played on TV news that night. Bob Jones, they caught it on camera, hitting him. And Rod Vaughan doing a piece to camera with a broken nose and blood everywhere and saying he hit me. And it's one of those great things about New Zealanders. Most New Zealanders out in the country said, yeah, of course he did. <laughs> but at that moment, Bob Jones had basically left New Zealand politics. Because, you know, it's um, not the done thing. My, my, Sir Robert Muldoon used to hit protesters. He would, he would have a fight. He famously would fight. He'd, if someone had a crack at him, he'd crack them back. These were, these were different times. Um, so that was the New Zealand party. So at that point, and it was all Bob Jones, and so when Bob Jones did that and then basically left the party, it was a gone. That was over. Mm. So there's a bit of history. Um, but I'm sort of looking for that change now, you know, with the COVID inquiry. They had a famous opening of the books where all the bad information about New Zealand's economic performance was hidden from New Zealanders and they opened the books. Well, wouldn't you have an opening of the books on COVID? Just an opening mm -hmm. of the data. Like we literally have Barry Young 
leaking stuff and getting punished for leaking it. A new government should be saying, knock your socks out. We'll get all the data out to public scrutiny. We'll get all the emails, all the discussions of officials around the lockdowns and the mandates. We'll put it all out in the public. Let's see it. Let's have some transparency and accountability. Because it wasn't his government that did this. And he can honestly say, I was in opposition and just was fed nonsense, like the rest of you. No opening of the books on COVID. That, to me, is unbelievable. No opening of the books that would allow us to assess the proper efficacy and safety of the vaccine. You don't, no, you don't need an inquiry to open the books. You just open them. Everything should be made. Luxon could say today, everything is going to be put out there. We will anonymize things so that people can't, can't get private details, but it'll be all available for around the world for researchers to look at the New Zealand data. It shouldn't be left to Barry Young to leak it and then be punished. Why hasn't John Luxon and the National Party, New Zealand First in the Act, opened the books on COVID? Well, I mean, I guess the, one of the obvious things is that two of those parties were part of the whole um, parliament at the time. Yeah, but they can easily get around that. The politicians, if you know, there's, there's a great line that Richard Pebble had, if you can't ride two horses at once, you've got no you shouldn't be in politics. It's sort of like a circus trick. You've got to be able to sort of change horse. And they've got to say, <laughs> they've got to say, um, we were misled like the rest of New Zealand. Let's open the books. You're sounding yeah. like an apologist for the government, don't I? No, obviously I'm not. I'm just, uh, no, I mean, I mean, I was meaning like it's the obvious reason why they, why they would be uh, afraid to go there because it, it um, exposes their failure. But, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying, that they can try to do their little ride two horses trick and say, oh, no, but we, we were misled too. Yeah, well, they, was... weren't privy, they weren't privy to the data and the information. And, of course, it's so many years on now. It's in hindsight. And um, But they they weren't decision makers back then. They weren't the government. Um, and so why, I mean, I tell you why they're not doing it, because they're part of the inside power structure in New Zealand, and they don't want citizens empowered. This suits them. It suits them. Um, so they'll make little adjustments to keep the you know, it's like that the peasants happy, but they won't they won't fundamentally change the system. They won't fundamentally open it up. Why? Because if they had an, if they had transparency, there'd be an accountability, and citizens would be empowered. And at the moment, they want they've got the power. They're not about to relinquish it, and the power resides in the secrecy and this lack of transparency. Oh my goodness, it's terrible when you think of it. A change of government, terrible time we've been through. Open the box. Let's see mm. it all. Let's see all of the emails. My goodness, imagine it. Let's see the Pfizer contract. Why wouldn't they? What's what what's to be gained by keeping that secret? 
or they can say, oh, well, it'll affect our, affect our reputation. Well, it would affect our reputation because you'd be a, you'd be a government that was putting your citizens first and allowing them to see what's going on. But we're not, we're not privy to it. Like, uh, I feel bitterly disappointed, don't I? And that's not going to get, because it, that's not going to happen now because it hasn't happened. You know, the time to do that was in December. Yeah, the longer you've left it, the the, the, the There the, you go. I've had a bit of a rant about my disappointment in Luxon that spilled over to New Zealand New Zealand Party and into the uh, eco economics of the 1980s because I feel we're at a similar juncture when you need actually some clear principles to, to guide a government and we need that openness and transparency. So that's where we are. Tane, I'm sorry to bounce off you and get so um, distraught but as I started to articulate my thoughts, I got upset because I'd previously just been thinking it. Uh, and then <laughs> I heard myself, I thought, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And I where's the justice for the vaccine injured? Yeah. It's, it's not hard. It's not hard. There we go. That was, uh, thank you, Tane. That was Politics Explained. I don't know how much we explained, but we had a good old rent and Paul Tane was um, standing in for Chris Luxon. Um, no, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to, like, I, I just no. trying to, I know that people can feel that too much doom and gloom. So, like, you know. Yeah, no, no, I'm not doom and gloom. I'm just reality. And that's why we have to be positive about our own lives and our own community because we're not going to be rescued. We're yes, like exactly. that. We're like lost in space. And we're on a strange planet, and we have to look after ourselves because um, we're not about to be rescued by this crowd. They're just doing the same. Tane, that was great. You're on Rally Check Radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, I apologise if I was too gloomy. I wasn't meaning to do that. I was just trying to be realistic and say we've got to look to ourselves, which is what yeah. Rally Check Radio was all about, and Tane yeah. Webster in particular, because he's got me gardening along with Wally. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me, inbox at Favourite time of the show. Favourite time. Favourite time. Mailbag. And here's some feedback for Rodney. And it's a link. And it was sent to a link to me on Facebook uh, last week. And didn't get through or uh, earlier this week. And they sent me the link on Twitter. And it's Brian Tamaki and his Twitter. And I'm going to read it out because I agree with it. So I'm taking this as feedback. And it's uh, Brian Tamaki speaking on X. As if I enjoy calling out political leaders and parties for what I believe endangers the future of our country. But you decide for yourself. The hypocrisy of Luxon and the National Party. Many conservative and Christian voters put National and their mates in so they could toss the LGBT plus transgender mad madness out in our schools, in our women's sports, in our bathrooms, Pride Weeks, months, and rainbow tick businesses. What next? Now the Nats are in the seats of power, they seem to have picked up the rainbow-coloured banner. Today, National May emailed their people declaring, quote, it's a big weekend coming up. In case you missed their memo, on Saturday they're supporting the big Auckland Pride Festival. On Sunday, it's the big gay out 
with great enthusiasm, encouraging their national supporters to proudly wave their flags and join the Young Nats, their national MPs and teams at these events. The Young Nats are pulling the strings. They're proud what they have been. They are proud that they've been led by queer presidents and executive members since the 1980s. They also proudly declare that they are quote one of the most powerful LGBT plus rights groups in New Zealand. So says Brian Tamaki. What is the future of National? Is National now leading the transgender rainbow agenda? And if you're still not convinced, just take a look at the Young Nats website below. And so it's got a picture of, I'm guessing that's, oh, that's Erica Sanford and Chris Bishop, and I think there are other National MPs whom I don't recognise, I'm sorry to say. But National MPs all standing there, all decked out, supporting the Pride Group. And I agree with Brian Tamaki. I mean, we believe everyone should be free, but we don't believe that boys can become girls, men can become women. It's not possible. Sure, they can be surgically mutilated and they can dress up as a woman. A woman they are not. Oh, here's one, Dr. Sarah Ferrant interview. Rodney, my word, I too have seen that old footage. I remember of a New York street, and I couldn't work out what seemed strange. You nailed it with the fact that the people looked healthy, happy, and strong facial structure. If only they could see the future of what we have become. Thank you, Paul. A great analogy of the rats and rubbish, Sarah. What a fascinating discussion about nits. Very interested to hear about the chemical changes, etc. Who knew? Keep up the good work, Rodney, from Beth. Re Lice. Many moons ago, Rodney, we forgot to dip our beef cows one autumn, a fixed event on all good farmers' calendar, until midwinter. We observed no evidence of lice apart from approximately 1% of the cows. These were the lightest cows out of 350. We had improved their nutrition and never dipped again. Amazing. That was from Graham. Remember Ginny Duval and Maria Custer interview, one of my favourites. Rodney, ask her if she has a social media outlet for her photos or art from Dusky. We would be keen to see them. Tim, ah, we've let you know, Tim. And it's Ginny Duval. Just Google Ginny Duval, G-I-N-N-Y-D-E-A-V-O-L-L, and it will pop up. And what was it? Pure Salt, and you'll see the work in Dusky Sounds. Oh, and I did a reflection on headlines from the so-called news stuff in the Herald. Hi, Rodney. Gee, you're not wrong about stuff, and for that matter, the Herald and most of the MSM. I don't know hardly anyone that listens, let alone trusts the MSM more anymore. By the way, you did write about Israel. Thanks for the great show, Alvin. Hi, Rodney. Why don't you ask Paul about this information? Gee. Mm, don't know what that is, what information that refers to. Sorry. Hi, Rodney, I just caught Donna's letter to you, read Hamas in Israel. I'm so glad you've taken a stand and are prepared to debate the topic. I'm definitely on the side of Israel as well. Have a listen to Cam Slater and the very well-educated Olivia Pearson on the political agenda with Paul Brennan. Yes, I do. I'm sick of so many people not even bothering to take a side and just sit on the fence like one of the hosts on RCR. It's so much better that we take a stand and have a bit of conviction. Olivia is well-informed, not only on this subject, but on political systems worldwide. She is very well-versed in many subjects, but on those, these two, she is an expert for want of a better word. You seem to have a pretty good grasp of the situation yourself, so good on you. Keep up the good work. Love your show. That's our number one fan, Mike, from Foxton. 
Hi, Rodney. Loved your rant about the ridiculous rubbish that passes for news in our MSM. You so highlighted the perpetual dumbing down that our citizens are facing, especially when you consider what could be being reported, namely the farmers' protests in Europe, the wars in the Middle East, Yemen, Central African Republic, Ukraine, the list goes on. Not to mention Julian Assange's trial, the WHO amendments, the methamphetamine epidemic in real, rural New Zealand, the vax injuries, the vax injuries, heavens above. For any, any onto it media person, the choice is theirs to make a real difference in this country right now. But we already know anyone who continues to work in the MSM has sold their soul to the devil and did so in the COVID era. Keep up the good work there, Rodney. You're much loved and appreciated. Thank you, Libby. I did not know about the methamphetamine epidemic in rural New Zealand. I'd love to hear more. And if there's someone I can talk to, I would love it. Dreadful thing. Dreadful. And we had some emails about wanting to know more about uh, with Sarah Ferrant, Dr. Sarah, about chiropractic and what that adjustment involves. We will do that. Because we love our listeners. It's not that we respect our listeners. Our listeners are us. We're a community. I'm so looking forward to the day that we can talk live on air. In the meantime, we just have to muddle through with your beautiful texts and emails. Remember, text me 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. I can't tell you how much I enjoy receiving your feedback. Critical and supportive. Suggestions and criticisms. I love it all. And suggestions, especially. I love suggestions. Thank you. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. Thank you so much for listening. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, I promised a good show, and I was a little worried when I said that because, of the, ooh, how's it going to go? My goodness. I thought it was a cracker. Barry Brill, $30 billion taken out of our pockets, crushing businesses, crushing household budgets, and posted overseas for nothing, not a benefit to New Zealand, 30,000 million dollars. And Mr. Luxon and Nicola Willis are still to cancel it. Still sitting there, that payment to be paid by us to them overseas. Oh, and wasn't Jonathan ailing great? I love the two stories that he told us. Well, love them. Is that the right word? I'm just loving it that people are supporting it. But this madness, it's just madness. Total, absolute madness. And then he and I had a bit of a to-do about the mongrel mob patches. And it's a great issue, isn't it? At what point of the intolerant do we deny them their free speech? Where do you set that bar? Well, I say it's above the mongrel mob. Like, they don't enjoy the rights that you and I enjoy. Because... At their core, they're intolerant and they're violent. They can eschew violence, easy enough. Take the jackets off. 
stop intimidating people. That's how you do it. And there's a big difference with like a Rotary Club membership, which is a bit of a sort of example that's used as a club. Rotary Clubs don't intimidate people. And we had Tane Webster. Oh, how wonderful was that? But I got on my high horse. I got a bit ranty-ranty. So I apologise to that, and I've apologised to Tane Webster because mm, I got carried away. But as I started to articulate my thoughts, I did get a little upset. I'm looking forward to being with you next week. And they're saying I'm doing okay on the song. So here we go. One more from Silver Black. Anyone who had a heart, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here with me. And we're here with each other. Thank you. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.